Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my special guest presenter and co-host, Beatrice Carpenter. And before you ask, yes, we are related. Beatrice is my daughter, and this podcast is really down to her and her passion for more sustainable fashion and putting an end to damaging aspects of the fast fashion industry. So, B, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, Today, we're really pleased to be recording this podcast during Digital Fashion Revolution Week, which is an annual event, which obviously in normal circumstances includes gatherings, press briefings and other face-to-face conversations. But this year, um, it's all gone online. And I'm so pleased and grateful that our guests today have been able to take time out from the week to join us and share their passion and experience. Adja Barber is a writer and fashion consultant who writes on sustainable fashion, intersectional feminism and race, and how they are all intertwined. She's an advocate for abandoning fast fashion and making sustainable changes and delivers daily wisdom on her Twitter and Instagram. Welcome, Adja. Thank you for having me. Sarah Ditty is the Global Policy Director at Fashion Revolution, a global movement across more than 60 countries campaigning for a clean, safe, fair and transparent fashion industry. She's responsible for both policy changes and public awareness and has led projects such as Fashion Transparency Index, ranking global fashion brands on their disclosure of their environmental policies and the ethical nature of their practice. Sarah, welcome and particularly big thank you to you because it's a huge week for you, I know. It's my pleasure to be here. So perhaps I could start by asking you, Sarah, could you explain to pod listeners who may not be aware what Fashion Revolution is doing and what the aims of the campaign are and perhaps some of the things that you've been hoping to achieve during this week and throughout the rest of the year? So Fashion Revolution Week was founded in 2013 as a direct response to the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse in Bangladesh. Um, where 1,134 people died making clothes for, you know, big name brands, big name uh, fast fashion brands. And many, many more were injured and many, many families were affected by this. And there was a group of people in the UK who got together basically around a table and were just, you know, devastated by the fact that a tragedy of this magnitude was possible after, you know, 25 years of corporate social responsibility initiatives and that um, the mainstream consumer just wasn't really involved in um, a lot of the conversations that had been happening around environmental sustainability or um, the kind of anti-sweatshop movement um, for a while, particularly in the UK. That was our focus because that's where most of us were based. But Mm -hmm. then So our kind of idea was to um, call for more transparency in the fashion industry. And that's because a lot of the brands who were, whose garments were being made in Rana Plaza didn't actually know that their clothes were being made there. There was potentially some subcontracting going on or, you know, they just don't have direct relationships with these suppliers. They don't own factories. Um, They just purchase products um, from basically people they don't know who are making their clothes. And it was really sad because they, a lot of the people who were working on the rescue had to basically dig through the rubble to try and find clothing labels to prove that the brands were producing there. So that the the kind of first step we saw towards change was, was that there needed to be way more transparency 
uh, in the fashion supply chain. We need to actually understand where clothes are being made and make sure that those um, factories and supply chains are made visible to, to everybody if possible. And so we planned Fashion Revolution Day on the first an anniversary of Rana Plaza. And it was meant to be just something we did in the UK um, and online on social media, making a bit of noise to make sure people didn't forget that this terrible tragedy happened and that change, you know, is still so desperately needed. And then it just spread like wildfire um, that year with over 55 countries getting involved. And it's since turned into Fashion Revolution Week, um, which every year coincides with the anniversary of Rana Plaza. And it's extraordinary that it wasn't just the general public and us, the consumers, who sometimes don't always know or perhaps don't always take the time to find out about where our garments are coming from. The fact that the actual brands themselves and those people who are, who are not just designing the fashion but are responsible for getting it from the factory out to the store were ignorant of that, you know, of where it was being made. And it took a tragedy of that magnitude with that loss of life and injury to, to really make them wake up. I mean, that is truly shocking, isn't it, really, given that, as you say, that we've had CSR and sustainability in the supply chain and, and people making statements, big companies making statements about how they, they source their supply chain and their ethics for so many years. I mean, that's a pretty shocking experience. Yeah, it really shows, I'm sure that Azure will talk about this too, but it really shows that just how unsustainable and exploitative that the system is. You know, the supply chains are very complex. They're very long. They're very fragmented. There's lots of middlemen. It totally obscures what the business relationships are. And then it ends up, you know, creating these imbalances of power where basically those with the most money, the mo those with the most marketing power um, call the shots and they can get away with, hiding terrible practices um, and exploiting people to make their products. For some brands though, they, they still act like they're ignorant to this, but they're not at this point. And that's, that's a bit troublesome to me. I've heard big brands say, well, you know, it's, it's really not our fault that our supply chain gets outsourced. You know, we can't be there. But to me, if that keeps happening, then what that tells me is that you as a business need to scale back until you can control your supply chain. And if you're unwilling to do that, then in some ways you are ignoring what we now know is very clear. So that word transparency that you used, um, Sarah, that's obviously really key to this, isn't it? I mean, that's that, is that what we are pushing, you, partly what you're pushing for within those supply chains themselves or within the brands or within the, the, the wider industry? It's one of the things that we're pushing for. I mean, we basically we see transparency as the sort of first step towards moving towards systemic change. Um, and the logic is basically like, if you can't see it, um, it's hard to fix it. And that's often what has happened in big brands is they kind of just, you know, ignorance is bliss. You know, you, if you don't really know where things are being made, you don't really have that visibility, then it's not your problem. Um, and so obviously there's lots of um, other issues going on then around, you know, the exploitation of people around environmental degradation and pollution and all those things um, aren't very clearly seen or understood when there's a lack of transparency. So that's kind of why we first started a campaign for greater traceability, greater visibility and greater transparency, especially from big brands, but from the whole, from the whole industry. And then behind that is really then looking at 
and advocating for the whole industry to move um, away from being designed as a system that prioritizes you know, endless growth and shareholder profits above all else. Um, because ultimately, you know, that, that's literally costing people's lives, um, particularly those who are, are already paid so little and often, um, you know, from more marginalized or vulnerable communities. And it's the environment that pays the price, you know, with the industry pumping out loads of carbon emissions and polluting waterways with microplastics and hazardous chemicals. Our planet is not an infinite resource and human labor isn't an infinite resource, but unfortunately for a lot of the bigger brands, they treat both like it is an infinite resource there for their taking. So for me, I find it very hard to take any of the big brands seriously when it comes to their pledges towards sustainability because nobody is talking about degrowth. They're all talking about endless capitalism, but our planet is not endless and our resources aren't endless. And you yeah. know, the amount of wardrobe that you need isn't endless either. You don't <laughs> need as much clothing as we as a society are buying. Absolutely. I think also that comes when we start to talk about greenwashing. And I think in the fashion industry, people are talking about that term a lot, banding that about. Could you maybe expand what you think the problems are with greenwashing and what exactly it is in the fashion industry? Greenwashing is when a brand basically oversells their environmental pledges, basically. Uh, for lack of a better word, lying a lot about what... <laughs> about what your brand is doing in regards to the environment. Um, an example of greenwashing is something like, uh, I think capsule collections are generally greenwashing. If you were giving your audience 20 products that are better made or ethical, but your entire website contains 7,000 garments that aren't, then what are you doing besides trying to buy yourself good PR with that capsule collection? Absolutely. And you're not sorry. changing anything about the way you run your business. Yeah. And I guess ultimately you can't, if you are that business and you have that business model, then however much you say you're doing, you know, like you say, it, it isn't really making much of a difference. To me, sustainability actually has to be really in the core of the business. And a lot of mm -hmm. businesses, I think, are trying to backtrack, but instead they have to think about how they can rebuild their business with sustainability at its core instead of adding it like it's an ingredient at the end of the recipe. So Lane Simon of the Slow Factory makes this great analogy where she talks about how sustainability isn't a spice that you add at the end. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to make a cake and you're not a vegan, you put egg in it. But if you forget that egg, do you crack it on top of the cake when it's done? <laughs> If so, what do you have? A very disgusting cake. <laughs> I think that is the attitude of so many industries as well, not just fashion, is that we can sort of, we can stick to exactly what we're doing now and just add this flavour of sustainability into the conversation and that will solve all the problems. Um, but like you say, it's just not that easy. No. Um, I just wanted to pick up on, you said about the terminology. I think that's something that kind of gets mythologised, like what sustainable is, what ethical is, what organic is. And I know, Azure, you've said you've written about this before. I just wondered if you could sort of break down some of that terminology for people who might not be familiar with it. Um, so there's long and short answers. So I'm going to try and do the short answers for time's sake. Um, yeah, sorry. When you are talking about fashion, when you think of sustainability, let's think of the environment. Let's think about the effects that this garment has on the environment, not just in its creation, 
but at the end of its life cycle. Um, as we have with fast fashion, we have a modern system of colonialism, essentially, where much of the resources that go into our fashion come from the global south. We're taking these resources at a price that it should be, frankly, illegal, um, which means that these, these countries that are very resource rich are not getting wealthy from this system. They should be because we need these resources, but they're not. So that's a system of exploitation. And then at the end of its life cycle, we are dumping it on other countries in the global south, and that creates another environmental hazard where you have literal mountains of rotting, stinking clothing and clothing markets like Ghana. Um, and there's, it's gotten to the point where it's such a problem that countries like Rwanda and Kenya have tried to put sanctions on the clothing that's being imported. However, countries like the U.S. then go and threaten to take away other aid and resources that they give to these countries, basically saying, if you don't take our cast off, so we won't give you this. And it's a system of exploitation. So we think about sustainability, think about the environment. When you think about ethics, think about people. Think about the people that make the product. Think about how they're treated. Think about how they're paid. Think about whether or not this business is improving the entire community and for most Places where fast fashion is made, the answer is no, it's not improving anything. If anything, it is pushing poverty in a way. And when I think about slow fashion, I think about from start to finish, um, what is the intention behind this product? But when I think about slow fashion, I generally think it should have both sustainability and ethics. Quite frankly, I want every item I own to have both of those things. The problem is, with brands, often they give you one or the other, and mm. you're supposed to be happy with that. But you know what? I want all the things. <laughs> Quite <laughs> really. Right. How much of this is a supply and a demand issue? Um, uh, it, it, you know, because we, I suppose if we had a garment manufacturer on this pod, you know, and one is welcome to come if you're out there listening and you want to come and join the conversation at some point, do. They would say, I'm merely meeting customers' demand. So, you know, the world wants fast fashion. Young people, you know, like B, who's, a, who's, a, who, who's out there at the point of, of perhaps being the typical, <laughs> typical consumer, you know, in her 20s, stylish, interested in things. They want to have, you know, a changed wardrobe. They want to have different things. And I think, it, you know, you can understand that, although those of us who are older and, you know, quite happy to wear the same thing again and again and again, we're not probably the target consumers. So how many of that how much of it is the consumer demanding fast fashion demanding change and how much of it is the supplier saying i'll push it out there and the more i send out there the more i know these young people will spend their money on buying it i mean but i think i think that answer is the 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 burden of this weighs on all of us i don't think that there is a very simple answer to this i think that social media has played its part I think that the brands have played their part. I think that consumers looking the other way to which I was one, you know, 10 years ago, I was in the same position. I played my part. And so I don't think it's one of those things where we can entirely blame this direction or that direction. I think we all have to sort of realize the part that we play there. But I will also say I've seen fashion speed up in the last 20 years. I've seen mm -hmm. that happen. And I don't think that consumers have demanded it. I think it's been very subtly pushed. I would say it's even sped up in the last three years, um, especially with these ultra fast um, fashion e-tailers, you know, like Pretty Little Thing or 
misguided Boo-hoo. or who or fashion Nova if you're based in the U S um, it's got, you know, it's gotten even faster and faster. And one way they do that is by producing much closer to where they're selling products. So they'll, they'll be producing in the UK. Um, for, like I know Boohoo produces 50% of their products in the UK and that doesn't mean that the conditions are that much better in those factories in the UK too. So, I mean, the system really is broken. I think that's what it, you know, I mean, I guess it's not broken in the sense that it's working very well for those who have uh, the power to, you know, to kind of shape what its structure looks like. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely the speed is, is a massive problem. Speed's linked to price as well, isn't it? Because if you can buy the infamous one pound bikini, you are going to, to, you know, or you can buy an outfit for not much more than you'd spend on a sandwich. You're going to buy something and because it's cheap in inverted commas, and we know that it's not cheap because the cost is borne somewhere by the, by those who make it or by the planet or both, you buy it and then you throw it away. You view it as disposable. You view it as totally disposable. Um, You wear it once, you Instagram it, and then it's gone. We have to have a cultural shift in what we value and how we value things. And that's why I can't put the responsibility in any one which direction. I mean, I always say, you know, as someone who occasionally makes things, I know how to knit. I know how to sew badly. I'm not, (laughs) I've made dresses, but they've always been very terrible, but well-loved by me. (laughs) Um, But as someone who knows these things, there was a part in my mind that willfully ignored that a dress shouldn't cost 20 pounds because the fabric is almost that amount to begin with. And so I had to come to terms with the fact that like there was a part of me that was willfully ignoring some of these things. But I also think social media has played its part. Okay, if you're going on Instagram and you're constantly seeing new things being shown to you and new things being pushed at you, then yes, you are going to sort of desire those new things. I've been influenced before by something I've seen on social media. Um, I don't lay all the blame on influencers, but I do think that the cultural shift there has perpetuated the problem in some ways. I think that's incredibly important. And it's very hard for, you know, for parents, particularly if they've got, you know, teenagers or or even younger being influenced by the things they see in social media. I mean, even, you know, the whole case that I have a kind of rant about football, not that I have, you know, footballing members of my family. Well, husband doesn't quite count. But, you know, the fact that young boys particularly are encouraged to, to have a new football strip every year because the football clubs put this stuff out there and they have a different away strip. So some poor parents got to spend, you know, 40, 50 pounds buying the strip. And then, you know, in six months, 12 months time, it'll be out of date and they'll want another one. They're made of really unsustainable materials. They, you know, they're not, they're very often um, synthetic and we know the damage that that's doing. Times also did an article about young people and their relationship to social media and fast fashion. And one of the things that they found was that the large percentage of the teenagers that they interviewed said that they did not want to be photographed in the same outfit twice on social media. Yeah. 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 So I've Instagrammed it, therefore I'm not going to wear it again. Well, that's yeah. why you can't, you know, I mean, in, in it, it's always a hard one for us because, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is to change the culture of fashion And we actually, we have, we're trying to change what we call 
like our three pathways of change, which is culture, industry, and policy. But when it comes to consumers or citizens, because um, let's be honest, we're more than just consumers, um, you know, in some ways you can't really blame consumers because obviously we're fed um, and brands spend millions and millions and millions of pounds, you know, marketing to us that we need to consume more and we, that, and in order to, you know, feel better about ourselves, we need to buy this product. So on, on, in that sense, you can't really blame people or especially like families who, you know, maybe don't have a lot of time or they don't have a lot of money um, to like look into these issues isn't always very possible um, or to even think about what your impact is when it comes to your clothes um, isn't like something that is just immediately readily, readily available. But then at the same time, we also really try to stress that you know, consumers also have like voice and power too. Like we're not completely powerless in this equation. And actually when we do speak up and we do make demands of brands and we do ask them questions and scrutinize the information that they're disclosing, um, that, that actually can be quite powerful and they're listening. Um, when we first started the Fashion Transparency Index, we had meetings with some of the big brands and asked them, you know, what would make you move faster on kind of on changing everything that you do? And they said, you know, we, we really do respond and listen to our customers. Even if we receive 20 emails or a hundred emails about a particular topic, you know, we'll often take that to the board or straight to the CEO and, you know, discuss it. Now, whether or not they do anything about that is a different thing, but, um, but at least it's driving a conversation in these brands. One of the things that I found very interesting about the transparency index is that it did seem like brands were a bit closed up about disclosing the amount that they were yeah. producing. And that I think is something that we are really going to have to challenge brands on in the future. Um, mm -hmm. And that's going to be a tough one because that's tied to the profits. But at the end of the day, brands are making too much stuff and we're consuming too much stuff. Absolutely. I think everything you're saying really resonates because I agree that I'm sort of, I'm maybe a hypocritical, I used to buy a lot of fast fashion. I'm really, really trying to think really carefully about what I do purchase now. Um, but as someone who's exposed to like a lot of the social media, especially when I was growing up, it was that culture of buy something, wear it once, etc. And to hear that brands are listening, I think is comforting in knowing that like actions that we can make as individuals are having a difference. But I agree, like the systemic change is obviously what will drive this forward. And um, I was just wondering, currently, we're in a really strange period where you know we're not going out in the same way and everyone is wearing outfits multiple days in a row and suddenly feeling comfortable about that um but also we've taken to purchasing online and i know that like there's a lot to be said about digital purchasing we've already touched on it a little bit um and about the impacts that might have i just wondered with this global pandemic going on how is that affecting the fashion industry and what are the, like, the consequences of our digital purchases greater than ever, or is, is it the same? I don't think they're listening when it comes to producing less stuff. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I think that they're trying to find ways around that, which yeah. that is an issue. At the end of the day, a sustainable future to me looks like some of these brands not making billions of dollars every year. That is what the sustainable future looks like to me, because when we talk about resources, when we talk about what this sort of consumption is doing to our planet, 
I don't think that we can have a future that is good for the environment if brands are still producing at the same rate that they're producing today. And it does seem like very few brands are very interested in having a conversation about degrowth. Why? Yeah. Because that does not make your board of investors happy. Why? Because it doesn't make your investors money. So unfortunately, I have a very hard time taking a lot of brands seriously on this stuff until they're ready to be open about how much they're producing and where their plans for growth stop, essentially. When will yeah. you stop? When will you stop drinking up all of the water in this area to produce millions of pounds of cotton every single year to make millions of pairs of jeans, many of which end up in the landfill? When will you stop doing that? So I want to make it very clear that regardless of how transparent a brand is and regardless of their big sustainability plans, the rate that we're producing at the earth cannot sustain us. Yeah, absolutely. So, these questions about COVID, that kind of plays into that though, doesn't it? Because if we stop purchasing as consumers because we're no longer having to have 15 outfits a week, we can wear the same t-shirt and pair of leggings every day because we're stuck at home. Um, is that going I to help? I could that? do that. Which I'm we can quite, do anyway. I, I sweat we could quite do a bit, so I yeah. can't wear something for a week, maybe a few no. days, okay. but like a, couple a week, of days. Two days, two days. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, is that an opportunity to shift that, that, that cultural and economic model, do you think? Because, I, because I think that's what is. we need. I we? think it is. I do. Um, but I don't see a lot of brands doing that. <laughs> No. You know yes. what I mean? It seems like I see people amping up the online sales and also capitalizing on the fact that it's fashion revolution week without any of the follow through that I as a consumer am demanding. So yes, I think this is an amazing opportunity. Do I think that people are taking that opportunity to go back to the drawing board and really, really dive into the topics that I regularly engage them on? No, I don't see them doing that, but I think it's a good opportunity to. <laughs> yeah, I wish, we could, I wish we could control that a bit more um, during Fashion Revolution Week. I mean, that's kind of the nature of being an open source um, campaign and platform as you do get people kind of using the opportunity to say whatever they want, which sometimes is pushing more products that people don't need. Um, and I, you know, I wish there was more of a way to police that, but with considering it's so big and we're so open source, it's very, very difficult. But yeah, I think, I think it's interesting with coronavirus. I mean, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but obviously, you know, as we're forced to stay home, people are sort of starting to reassess and maybe reprioritize what they actually need. And you know, at the moment, obviously, the demand for clothing has really plummeted. And this is force, forcing a lot of uh, brands who are all, you know, who maybe have not already been doing very well in the market anyway. I, I kind of expect that they will probably not exist by the time Fashion Revolution Week rolls around next year. And I mean, to be honest, I think that's probably a good thing in many cases, um, you know, get rid of some of these <clears throat> But is, there's an economic we don't need, but there's an economic consequence to that, isn't there? Because that's, I mean, and that's part of the problem is that we know that those brands may go out of business. Those investors will do, won't do so badly. They'll do a little badly, but they'll go off and invest in something else, and they'll be protected by the, the system. You know, the garment workers for whom that job is is the difference between eating and not eating, and feeding their family and not feeding their family. They'll be suffering because if they're no, I mean, and that isn't right. But there's that economic. That's the the, the issue we're having to wrestle, isn't it? Because if yeah. we change the paradigm, just as with all things with about the climate, and, if we take out I, a negative thing, 
Mm-hmm. It has negative consequences. And I want to also bring this back to the brands because some brands are reacting very negatively to this. There is a campaign by a group on Instagram, Remake Our World. The brand is hashtag pay up brands. And a lot mm-hmm. of brands that love to push in a conversation about how this is how we're doing sustainable have basically essentially walked away from paying a lot of garment workers because their stores aren't open. So it's basically like, well, you know, we can't sell these goods. So uh, yeah, sorry, we're not going to pay you. That is absolutely criminal. But I think the biggest problem for me is that I can't prop up this system anymore because, you know, at the end of the day, these are still, they're not good jobs. They're their starvation wages. People are now essentially starving because the brands won't pay them what they're owed. But on a regular day without COVID-19, these are still starvation wages. And the, the organization Trade is doing a collection for garment workers, which I did donate to, and I've been sharing that on my Twitter and will share my stories today, but they're raising money for funds so that garment workers can essentially eat right now because that's a big part of the problem. So I don't want to give brands a lot of credit because I don't think they're deserving of it. If your reaction to a, you know, global pandemic is to not pay your workers, especially when you are a billion dollar company, I think that that is quite frankly a bit evil. Yeah, yeah, I, I think mean, it, I mean, it's absolutely shocking that that like you like you're saying, you know, we will have to take to charities and it's taken this pandemic to highlight the issues that were already existing before this. And it's only now that people I think a lot of people are coming to terms with what the true cost of their clothes really was. And, um, and not just that, but when the pandemic kicked up, especially in the UK, and people were starting to go into isolation. A lot of brands, particularly ones that are owned by billionaires, stayed open until the government said, hey, we've come up with a plan to pay workers. And then all of a sudden they closed as if like people actually needed a fashionable cotton maxi dress when we were basically being told to get off the streets for the safety (laughs) of our lives. You know what I mean? So a lot of these brands who are owned by billionaires, it's quite a few of them on the high street, were making their employees work during a time period where you could get sick and die. Why? Because they were waiting for some sort of plan from the government when in actuality you could just pay your employees. So in another roundabout way, that's going to get stuck on the UK taxpayer. We shouldn't be okay with that. You know, you have Mm -hmm. Philip Green already asking for a bailout for Topshop. He's a billionaire. Pay for your company billionaires. Absolutely. I think it just highlights their priorities, um, you know, even further. And just talking about, you know, obviously we boycott, we try our hardest to boycott these brands and like never that's the best option at the moment or not without the sort of just transitions in place, I guess is another question. Um, But when we talk about what good brands are, could you give us a bit of advice about, you know, what makes a good sustainable fashion brand and where a consumer or an individual, if they do want to purchase more fast fashion, although I know the biggest encouragement would be to not to and to wear what you have in your wardrobe already and treasure that. Um, what are some of the best brands you think are out there and are, are examples of kind of I think the future? If it's too fast, it can't really be good for the environment or that sustainable, to be honest. Like that's the problem is, the fast element it has to slow down and so 
when you say fast fashion, if someone asks me what's a good fast fashion brand, I would say mm, probably none of them. You yeah, know? so not a fast fashion. <laughs> I mean, just in terms of a sustainable like clothing brand, I guess. If you wanted to invest, you know, you wanted to invest for a lifetime in a new t-shirt because the one Can you I have has a hole in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe just interject for a second yeah, yeah, as of course, well sorry. to say that. It, it's all it's not all, it's not just fast fashion that's fast as well it's also mm-hmm. like premium and luxury segment of the market too that's exactly. been moving in a faster and faster um time frame you know they rapidly um increase the number of seasons yeah. that luxury brand you know these big luxury brands are expected to like pump out now um, like we have pre-resort and resort and pre-fall, pre, pre-fall, pre-spring. <laughs> and it's just, it's now, it's now like very, very relentless. So you, yeah, exactly. So when we talk, when we talk about like the speed of it being a problem, it's not just fast fashion. It's also like others, um, segments of the market. Yeah. The entire Absolutely. world needs to slow down basically. Um, I think sometimes when I do think about luxury and I don't think there's been a lot of studies about that. It sucks because it's a class problem, but you don't see as much luxury being devalued in the way that fast fashion is devalued. And I so guess that, if you've paid more for it, you're inclined, probably inclined to hang on to it for a little bit longer, aren't you? I mean, not maybe the high, really high end consumer, but but somebody kind of you know on a on a reasonable, you know, who who would pay a little bit more, so wouldn't buy the one pound bikini, maybe spend thirty or forty pounds on a bikini and a hundred pounds on a dress. You're going to hang on to it because you can't afford to buy another one like that afterwards. Once again, I just think we have to really have a conversation about what we value in our society and what we give value to and why we give value to those things. Yeah, exactly. And I think the price, just the high price tag, like I completely am aware of that. It's not just, you know, the, the cheap brands that are the problem here it is our, the nature of the way we consume and the nature of production. And I think often is the case that the high price tag confuses the consumer and or perhaps not confuses them, but they take it, oh, well, because it costs more, it must have been made in a more sustainable way. And the problem with that is obviously- That's not know, always true. Exactly. It's the same thing as what I was talking about earlier too. It's like, just because it says it's made in the UK or it's made in Italy, it doesn't mean that it's been made in a sustainable way either. You know, exactly. it's still, that there still could be like some very low paid um workers in the supply chain and you know some very unsustainable materials being used to 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 make those products regardless of of where they're made so that's just you know even like i've seen a lot of luxury brands you know really expensive dresses made of viscose which is like <laughs> yes, the same sir. fiber that you'll find in like any zara or h&m shop so it's yeah. just with the same toxic properties sarah yeah. just quickly we, we probably do need to wrap up in a minute but just can you tell us a little about the work you've done with the un because obviously we spend a lot of time on the pod talking about getting to net zero and working with the ipcc and and and, and you know looking at un conventions how influential and important do you think that kind of un fashion industry charter is going to be and how much impact can it have it's still in early days, but yeah, we, so we are um, signatories to the UN uh, Fashion Industry Charter on Climate Action. And the goal is basically to move the industry, um, or at least a significant chunk of the industry towards net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in line with the Paris Agreement. I mean, if you ask me, 2050 is way too far away and I yep. wish that the that the deadline yeah, being was to agree. 
tomorrow, but, um, but you know, anyway, it's great that there's at least some, you know, kind of big, big players in the fashion industry, um, both brands and manufacturers kind of coming together and actually trying to figure out what a decarbonization pathway would look like. Um, so we're just basically part of that uh, initiative, part of the charter to kind of make sure that the momentum keeps going um, and that we're, you know, always there to kind of scrutinize and push the buttons of these big brands and, you know, make sure that they're, when they're talking about publicly about what they're doing to decarbonize, that it's not just the, they're not just sharing the kind of shiny policies or the, the nice commitments that they're making towards this goal, but they're actually um, disclosing, you know, what are the results of these efforts? What's the progress you're actually making? How much carbon are you emitting? Um, and what are the real concrete steps uh, and outcomes of those efforts? So that's mm. what we're there for. That's really important because I think what we have to do is try and, as you've been saying, Agile, we have to get this as part of a whole lifestyle. So it isn't just, you know, we'll look at our energy supply and be sustainable there, but then we'll go off and buy a really, you know, unsustainable item of clothing. We've got to mesh all of those things together. And they're difficult decisions for people to make. And there's, there's sometimes a real lack of proper information and guidance out there, is it? You know, you've been saying you're calling the brands out, but it's quite difficult for an uninformed consumer to know where to go and I know there's some exceptionally good slow fashion slow fashion providers out there we've had I, people on the pod before like birdsong and things but it's quite hard them. isn't it I was going to say think about what you as a consumer value and find a brand that really matches up mm. with that because there's a lot of different elements that go into whether or not you know you might want to shop from this brand or that brand but if you if you can really sort of invest in where you spend your money and do the work there, then you can find that there are great brands doing great things everywhere you look. You just have to be willing to take a bit more time there. And let me tell you, the key word is invest as well. Yes, isn't it? Treat it like an invest investment. Your money, but exactly. invest your time as well. And I will say as someone who used to be a fast fashion consumer, once I actually stopped and got off that train, I had more time to invest in <laughs> <laughs> the rate at which you're buying clothing, it sort of is a bit tiresome. And one of the things that I found was I found a lot more enjoyment in the clothing in my wardrobe when I stopped leaping on to the next thing every single you know, time something was pushed at me, basically. I yeah. really got to enjoy my wardrobe. I got to invest in the brands that I truly liked. And the want and desire to always have new, new, new goes away, which means that you have a lot more brain space freed up for other things that are, that really bring you joy. Yeah. It is hard to not see this as a gender issue, but I mean, I do think that men are as as much a victim of this as, as, as women are in terms of being pushed fast fashion. However, sometimes they seem to be able to get away with it. You know, that infamous Australian newsreader who wore the same suit to work every single day for a year, no one even noticed. So I think sometimes we, you know, we allow ourselves to get sucked in. That's a really, really good call to action, Aja, that idea that you might invest both in yourself and in your purchases, but also build a relationship with the brand that you're buying for. Sarah, what would be your kind of call to action for listeners? Because we like to try and encourage pod listeners to, to do things as a result of listening to our conversations. What's the one or two things that people could do um, to, you know, maybe change behaviours or think differently? Yeah, and just on that quickly, sorry. Also, how can, as an individual, not just so if we do, we're investing and we're, we're conscious about what we're consuming, how can we also hold brands accountable um, and, you know, ask them, what are you doing? What are you doing more of, et cetera? 
I think that's super important. I mean, all of the things that um, Adja just described is the things that we usually tell people to, you know, first consider whether you need to buy something at all. Um, do you need something new? Or actually, could you fall back in love with something that's already in your wardrobe? You know, if, you've, then if, if you feel like you really need something new, like, can you try and find it secondhand first? If you can't find it secondhand, then, you know, look for, spend a little time. Maybe you don't need to buy it right away. Save up a little bit of money and invest in something that's been made by a smaller, slower, independent um, brand or retailer or designer who shares the same values that you do. And, you know, chances are that brands, um, they're not going to be able to be tackling every single social and environmental issue. Um, you know, some are going to focus more on waste and recycling or water consumption or gender equality or women's empowerment um, and, or, you know, artisan and craftsmanship or diversity and um, body size inclusion or some, you know, a range of different topics. So just um, look for whatever speaks to you most as the first port of call. And then, you know, if you have to buy something from a fast fashion brand or on the high street, then obviously, you know, that's what you have to do. And that's okay. You're not evil. But then make sure you speak up. Make sure, you know, that's what I do. If I have to buy something from the high street, occasionally I do, I will take the time to tweet or uh, message that brand on social media, like Instagram or Facebook, or even email them and just say like, hey, you know, I bought this pro product from you. Uh, I really like it, but I want you to know that I think that you should be doing better for the people working in your supply chain and that you should be making much bigger moves towards um, changing your <laughs> entire system from being <laughs> one that values people and planet. Yeah, just a small ask, but definitely worth asking. Yeah. Um, thank you so much to both of you for being part of this podcast. Um, it's been really fascinating and you've been amazing guests. Um, for the listeners who want to maybe hear a little bit more from each of you, could you say like, is it best to follow you on Twitter or your Instagram? Like, how can people stay up to date with what you're talking about? Um, I microblog every day on Instagram. My Instagram is my name, Asha Barber um, at, wait, www.instagram slash Asha Barber. And then <laughs> um, if you want to support my work and get even more daily writings, musings, opinions from me, then you, I can be found at Patreon, patreon.com slash Aja Barber. That's, that's what funds my work because I have only one sponsor on my grid and it is not a fashion sponsor. And the majority of people that do sponsorships for Instagram tend to be a lot of apparel. And so the only way that my work is supported is through Patreon. If you would like to support me, I'd be grateful. Great. Thank you so much. And Sarah, should we just get involved in the Fashion Revolution Week or... Yeah, so Fashion Revolution Week is happening now through Sunday. Um, don't forget that Friday is the annual anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse. So particularly on that day, I would really urge you to take a moment on social media or there's an automated email tool if you're not on social media on our website to contact brands and ask them what they're doing to support garment workers, especially during the coronavirus pandemic crisis. Um, and you can find us at fashionrevolution.org. You can find us all over social media. Um, so Instagram is at fash underscore rev. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, we're on Twitter. You can find us all there. And yeah, I just want to say as well, like definitely 
um, I would really recommend checking out Asha's platforms as well. She's just got such a great point of view. So, and if you can Thank support, you. Um, please do. Oh, and one Thank last you. thing I want to say, there was a report last year, the Fixing Fashion Report in the UK. Uh, I think that we're going to definitely continue to push those conversations. So if you are interested in joining the conversation, that's a great way to start. The Fixing Fashion Report was a list of guidelines, I guess, that were given to Parliament, and they rejected everything. And some of that stuff was <laughs> stuff that we could easily implement that would really ease the weight of fast fashion environmentally. And I, I want to see us continue that conversation. And so there's plenty of conversations and ways to get involved online, look out for them and be vocal. Thank you yeah. so much. Great. Thank you both so much. Thank you, B, for co-hosting. Um, uh, we'll certainly put all those links up on, on our website. And, and folks, it's 24th of April if you, um, if you want to get involved. And of course, that's an annual, that's an annual um, memorial, I guess it is, isn't it? And a spur to action. Um, you, know, you can catch up with the podcast um, at our website, www.theplanetpod.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well. You've been terrific guests. Thank you both for your time. Um, and I think we all need to go and give our wardrobes a little bit of a long, hard look and check that we're not buying the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Uh, fall back in love with your clothes. Thanks for listening. Thank you, pod listeners. Stay safe and stay well. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening.